let's go before the Lord. Let's pray. Ask that he would be with us this morning. Well, Father in heaven, we, uh, we've just sung before the throne of God above. We have a strong and perfect plea. And so I want to thank you, Lord, that because of the work of our great high priest, Jesus, uh, who has been tempted in, any, in every way yet without sin, who can sympathize with every weakness, that because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us, that because he is our great high priest, we can enter into the throne room of grace with confidence and know that our plea, that our prayer is perfect in your midst, that it's strong, that you hear it, every prayer, and that even for us right now, Jesus is interceding on our behalf in ways that we couldn't understand, but with a perfect plea for exactly what we need in the places of insecurity and fear and anxiety. And so, Lord God, we pray that your spirit would be with us, and in particular this morning we think about we think about some of those in our congregation who are facing cancer and who are facing uh, disease and illness and sickness. We think about Austin Shepherd and Luann and their family. We know this is a big week for them, that in a week from now he'll be having bone marrow transplant surgery. And, and I just want to pray for their family, Lord God. I want to pray for Abby Files, who uh, had her first treatment of chemo this past week. And uh, as these brothers and sisters face uh, cancer and face treatment, Lord God, we lift them up to you. We plead for you. With, for, we plead to you for them. We ask, Lord God, that you would work through their doctors. That you would give their doctors and their physicians and their nurses great wisdom and skill in the treatment plans that they set forth. We pray, Lord God, that those treatment, that that treatment that is prescribed would would work and would bring healing and that their pain and their recovery would be minimal. And God, that you would get them back on their feet quickly and that you would help them in their midst, in the midst of insecurity and fear and where there's uncertainty with how they'll pay the bills and what's ahead for them in terms of work and career and finances and family. Lord God, we pray for them. We, we lock arms right now spiritually as the family of God, as the people of God, and we lift them up to you. We bring them before the throne room of God, and we say, be with, be with the shepherds and be with the files and bring healing and comfort to their families. God, for those in our congregation who are sick or who are in uh, situations where they might be uh, predisposed or uh, in a situation where they might be particularly vulnerable to corona, we ask that you would cover them and protect them and provide for them, Lord God. Uh, we ask, Lord God, that this morning as we uh, think about Jesus and think about your love for us, that you would make the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. So, God, we pray that you would come and breathe new life into our spirits as we engage with your word this morning. We thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Psalms, and we're going to look at Psalm 103. And so, as good fortune would have it, we actually do have the slides for this. Uh, psalm 103, we're not going to look at the whole psalm, but we're going to look at a portion of it, and I'll start reading in verse 1. 
and 2, and then we'll skip ahead to verse 7. So praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. But as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And then verse 22, praise the Lord, O my soul. So I want to open our time this morning by looking at a quote from uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a famous preacher from the 1900s, who's this powerful and eloquent British preacher and medical doctor from Wales. And, uh, And this is what he had to say. I want to read this and think about it together. I say that we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk. Do you realize that what that means? I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual anxiety and insecurity in a sense is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Hey, take those thoughts that come to you the moment that you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now the psalmist's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking back, taking charge. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So now he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who he is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. And then, having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. I would say that maybe a simple goal for our time together today would be this, that if that quote is really strange or unclear or confusing for you, that maybe by the end of our time together this morning, that in some sense, and maybe in an intriguing and powerful new way, it would come to light for you and that you would be able to apply it. Or if you sort of do already understand what Lloyd-Jones is saying there, but you think, I just don't know what that looks like consistently in my life. 
It's not a practice. It's not something that I do frequently enough that there would be a vision for how you could apply that in a new way. That might be the goal. And if he's right that the source of all our spiritual anxiety and insecurity in some way is this inner self doing the talking and that instead what we need to do is talk back, then I want to share exactly what we might need to say to ourselves in order to see the comfort and the freedom and the peace that David intends for us here in Psalm 103. Because in some ways, this is what Psalm 103 is all about. So one of the ways that we can get at, as Bible students, what a particular psalm is all about, sometimes is by this method called inclusio. This is what Hebrew scholars look at in the text and they say, oh look, there's bookends. At the very beginning of the psalm and the very end of the psalm, they say the exact same thing. And that's the case in Psalm 103. The way that it starts, praise the Lord, O my soul. And then the very last line, praise the Lord, O my soul. So this is what Psalm 103 is all about. It's about the blessing of the Lord, praising the Lord. And then everything in between then becomes, uh, of those bookends, becomes the reason for the praising, the reason that we would sing praise to the Lord. But what's interesting about this is who David is giving this command to. Who is David talking to? Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. So he's looking at his inner thought life, his deepest desires, his emotions, his inward being, and he's saying, soul, self, praise the Lord. He's talking to himself. He's doing what Martin Lloyd-Jones has suggested. And what David is doing here is one of the most important daily spiritual practices that any of us need to, to grab a hold of. This is the practice of an aging saint, someone who has matured in the faith, who has been tested and tried through the sufferings and trials of life. And David is showing us the road, the road map here. He's giving us the pathway. Where do we go when we have fear and anxiety and depression and insecurity? How do we transfer from that place in our souls to a place of of comfort and peace. What does that look like? I can remember vividly the first time that I really had any kind of experience with this in my own life. I was 12 years old, and I was reading the Bible just before bedtime while I was visiting my dad uh, in Wisconsin. And the story behind that experience was this, that for the past three years, so from eight to 11 or 12 years old, Every day after school, I would go home with this kid named Randy, and his mom would babysit me until, my sister and I, until my mom got off work and came to pick us up. And the routine was virtually the same every day. My sister and his sister, they'd go upstairs and they'd play dolls and they'd have fun and games and things like that. But Randy and myself and one other eight-year-old boy would go down to the basement and we would close the door, and Randy would put in horror movies. You remember the horror movies of the 1980s, and he would put these movies in, and for the next two or three hours, this other little kid and I would sit there, and we would watch the most graphic, awful, terrifying violence playing out on the screen that you could ever imagine. It was the most horrible things, these movies that he would watch. And we were shocked, and Randy would just laugh and laugh. <laughs> it didn't seem to affect him at all. But when I would go home at night for the next three years, 
I had to have every single light in the house on. I would beg my mom, please, can I sleep on their bedroom floor? Can I sleep on my sister's floor? Can I have night lights? Can I have the hallway lights? And she would inevitably say in those moments, Andy, don't you understand that it's just a movie? It's totally fake. Like, those are just actors. They're in other movies too, and so it's all fake. And the weapons, they're just plastic weapons, and that's fake blood. And yet somehow, none of that ever helped. And so eventually my mom would cave and she'd let me turn on nightlights and sleep on her floor or somewhere else in the house where I'd feel somewhat secure. And that kept going until I was 12 years old because my dad never caved. And whenever I would go visit him, he made me close my door and no nightlights and totally dark. And so this one particular night, I was sitting on my bed and my stepmom had gotten a prayer Bible for me and I had never really read the Bible except on Sunday mornings at the church that we went to. And yet, here I was this summer looking at the Bible, and I came across Psalm 27. And Psalm 27 said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of what shall I be afraid? And I don't know why, but when I kept, read, I kept reading that, that, that little verse over and over and over again to, to myself, and for the first time, in my life, I felt this transfer of trust from this place of insecurity and fear and the boogeyman's about to bust down the door and take me out like the movies to I am not afraid of anything. And it was peace and I wasn't afraid and it was the first time in my life that I had ever experienced the word of God doing something powerful and new in my life. It was amazing. Well, that was 30 years ago. I was 12 at the time. And if I could be bold and honest, I would say that all of us probably know that there is still an inner voice of fear and insecurity that terrorizes us and plagues us at times. And that the only way that we can experience power is through this trust transfer where we pummel our souls with the truth of God's love. What does that look like? And the reality is, yeah, we're not afraid of horror movies anymore, but there's still plenty of things in the world that we live in, even right now, to be really frightened of um, that can be terrifying. You know, one of the, the good things about 2020 has been the memes that people have put out on the internet. So, so here's one that I saw, uh, you remember the Princess Bride? Waking up every morning in 2020, be like, let's see, where were we? Oh yes, the pit of despair. And sometimes that's how life can feel. That's how this year can feel. Here's another one uh, that was about uh, kids and their favorite ice cream truck. If 2020 were an ice cream truck, they'd be selling liver and onions. And so, so the reality is that there's, there's a lot going on in our world right now that, uh, with, where there's uncertainty and instability and fear. And while it may not be a horror movie, many times life can feel like that as we're faced with the challenges of life. And here's David showing us that one of the most important spiritual disciplines that we need to practice and work on and focus our daily lives on to combat this horror of a world broken by sin is simply this, to not forget. Do not forget the Lord and his benefits. And so he begins Psalm 103 as if he's backing up the dump truck of what God has done for him. 
and, and for his people, and he's just letting it roll upon his soul. So I want to look at three things about this God and about his love for us as a, our Father that we are to remind our soul of consistently and press in in the places of despair and doubt so that we can transfer from something temporary to something far more permanent, which is God's absolute security in his unconditional love. And so we're first going to look at God's unconditional love, and that starts in verses 13 and 14. So if we look at these passages here, it says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. Now keep in mind that when David is saying this, he is remembering the people of Israel and Moses and their waywardness in, during the time of the Exodus. And he's remembering his own sin. This is a psalm at the end of his life. And he's remembering his own uh, life story of brokenness and adultery and deceit and murder. And he's thinking about all this. And, and yet here it is as he's battling his soul with the, the reminders of unconditional love. He says, as a father has compassion on his children. Now what that tells us is that God's love is filled with this deeply emotional, visceral feeling for his children. This word compassion, it's probably not strong enough for us to really convey what the Hebrew experts are trying to get across here. And, 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 what, and what David is trying to say is that this compassion is this visceral, overwhelming, deeply in love with something feeling that God has. And so in the Old Testament, when the writers used this word compassion, they used it a lot in reference to mothers. So I want to show you two quick places where that happens. The first is in Isaiah 49, 15, where the people of God are anxious. They're fearful of rejection, of being forgotten and forsaken by God because of their sin. Their world is coming apart around them because of the exile. And through the prophet, God says in Isaiah 49, this is amazing, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? There's the word. Though she may forget, I will never forget you. Now I want you to just think about that for a moment. Imagine a mother nursing her newborn baby, holding the baby tenderly in her arms. There's connection, there's intimacy Maybe she's letting the baby hold on to her finger. Maybe she's stroking the baby's cheek. They're making eye contact. There's this deep bond that's taking place, this compassion. that's something deeply, deeply visceral, this powerful emotion. And so when the Hebrew writers or when, when, our, uh, when our New Testament English authors look at that word and they try to translate it, they put the word compassion on it. And, and this is God having the audacity to say, you know what, that is so beautiful. Could you ever Im imagine a mother with their baby and then somehow forsaking that child, the love, the bond, and then forgetting about it? God says, even though a mother could forget, no way, not me. I could never let that happen. Not my love. It will never end. Now, the other place that that word is used to describe this deep maternal love is in 1 Kings 3. Now, we don't have this on the screen, but if you remember this story, there's a mother who in the middle of the night, her baby dies. And in her despair and her anger, she runs to another home nearby 
to another mom who has a baby, and she steals that baby from the sleeping mother. The next morning, the sleeping mother wakes up and realizes what has happened and brings this mom and her baby before King Solomon. And so King Solomon is trying to figure out, what am I going to do here? And so he says, I've got it. Here's what we'll do. We'll cut the baby in half. We'll give you half. We'll give you half. This seems to be the only way that we can settle the argument. And what happens? Well, it says in 1 Kings 3 that the real mother had compassion. She was filled with compassion, this visceral, overwhelming sense of being moved with love. And she says, no, stop. I'm the liar. I'm the one. I, I, you send the baby over here to, the, to, to this woman whose baby really died. She, she's the one. She can have it. I'm the liar. And the king says, now, I want you to imagine that for a minute, that if a woman in her position had done that, had basically gone before the king and made this case and then suddenly retracted what they had to say and said, I lied about the whole thing. She can go, the baby can go over there. That the king would have every right to view that perjury, that lie, that stealing of someone else's child as a capital offense. And so what this love now is teaching us is that there's this self-sacrificial compassion and willingness to die, to go to the point of death for the child. So here's the picture that we're given of what this deeply, incredibly powerful word means, that God says, without hesitation, steadfastly, I love you to my core, this visceral, self-sacrificial, all the way into the middle of God's heart. Now, why would God do that? Why would God love us that way? I'll look at verse 14 again. We have that passage, you can look at 13 and 14. It says uh, in verse 14 at the beginning, for. Now, whenever you see for in the Bible, that's supposed to tell us why something is happening. It's the because. For, he knows that how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Now, the reason that can be a corrective for us is because if you look at 13 and 14 and say, why would God love us that way? It might be tempting to read it this way. Well, as a father has compassion on his child, he has compassion on those who fear him. So the reason that God loves us is because we fear him, right? But that's actually not what's happening here because David is employing a literary device. He's using Hebrew poetic parallel parallelism, which means that in verse 13, what he starts off saying is really just reflected or synonymous with the back half of it. So that means that whenever we see his children that those who fear him go together, right? They go, they're one and the same. Fear in the Bible means to be blown away in awe, to live in a relationship of awe and wonder with your fa father. And so all that he is saying here is that being children and fearing him are the same. It's really not the basis for God's love. One of my favorite stories of my own kids being blown away at the wonder and awesome power of their dad was when my my twins were little, and one of them was sitting in my lap. He's young, and, you know, he's, uh, he, he's hanging out with me, and we're kind of snuggling, and he kind of reaches up, and he grabs a hold of my arm, and he's squeezing it, and so I kind of squeeze back, and I flex my bicep, and as he was feeling it, his eyes got big. Whoa! And uh, he goes, Dad, that's the biggest muscle in the world. It's like a pile of rocks. And I said, son, you've been, never been more right in your whole life. <laughs> That's exactly what that is. 
And so there was this, this thing about kids, right, with their dads. And we all experience it when we're young. We look at our parents and we're like, man, they are um, they're, they're powerful and big and so much stronger than us. Well, that's what David is saying. He's saying, no, the basis for God's love is not that. Those things go together. That's just being a kid. Fear, reverent awe, that goes together with being a kid. So then the point is, well, then why does he love us? For he knows how we are formed and he remembers that we are dust. And what that means is that dust is a metaphor for frailty. It's actually for a metaphor for being in a weak condition. It's like being broken. And so this defies common sense. How would somebody say, I love you because you're a mess? I love you even more because you're a wreck. That's like God saying, when you get it right, I love you more. And when you get it wrong, I love you more. That in some sense, the way that God's compassion is communicated in this passage, as if to say, you can get it right, I always love you, never changing. You can get it all the way wrong. Nothing changes. Nothing moves me off of my love for you. That doesn't make any sense to us unless we're parents. And as parents, we realize, we realize that there's nothing that our kids could do, that even when we have even below average parents like me who understand that, that if one of their children is acting stupid or they're being the worst son or daughter in the world, it's still all compassion and sympathy and it's heartbreaking for me as a parent. It makes me want to love them more. Your heart goes out to them even more because even below average parents, and there's a lot of us, at least 49% <laughs> are below average if you work the numbers. But even below average parents, we know that as soon as our children are born, our heart locks on in such a way that whatever happens and however they screw it up, unless they're happy, we're not happy. And so here's God saying, this is my love for you. That's the kind of love that I have for you. I'm so emotionally involved, so viscerally, steadfastly committed to you that it doesn't matter what you do. I love you more. And so... We are absolutely safe in this indissolvable emotional commitment that God has for us. Would that be good? Would, would, would that help to be able to meditate on that and to take that truth and speak it back into your soul when there's fear of rejection or shame? Of course it would. Secondly, Here's what David highlights about God's fatherly love in verses 8 and 10. It's his compassionate anger. What? Why would that be something good to meditate on? The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. So here we have a God whose compassion and grace is driving another emotion. The more fundamental love, which abounds and governs, out of that comes this, this kind of anger that the father feels towards his children, but he does not repay us, which means it's not payback anger. It's not retributive anger. It's not tit-for-tat anger. Now, another thing some of us below average parents know all about is payback anger. So that's when your, your kids, if they in, inconvenience you, right, or embarrass you or humiliate you or hurt your feelings, what are we tempted to do? <laughs> We're tempted to hurt back. We're tempted to, 
We're tempted to hurt their feelings or to create unpleasantness for them. You created unpleasantness for me, I'll shame you. But really, we all know that this never works, that that is just poison for the family. And so sometimes there is a type of rain, try to envision this, that passes over your yard, and that rain leaves everything green and lush. It's this quiet, quick, soft, controlled rain. But then there's also a storm that can pass over and swamp and flood and destroy everything in your yard. That's payback anger. It's reactionary. It's fly off the handle. You hurt me. I want to pay you back. But God's anger is slow. It's utterly under his control. It's restorative. It's grounded in love and wisdom. It passes as soon as it cleanses, and it always renews. And so this anger is temporary because the compassion is driving the anger. The compassion is permanent. Verse 9 says, he won't harbor his anger forever. He might harbor it for a while, but listen, who would ever say, I'm so thankful for the anger of God, for the anger of a loving parent, but as frail and broken, messed up people who are constantly in danger of ruining our lives through addiction and selfishness and idolatry, we desperately need someone who can love us this way. Because there's two types of parents that will destroy your lives. There's the detached parent who gives no engagement, never gets angry, could just really care less, do whatever you want. But then on the other side, there is the retributive payback anger, the explosive parent who dominates and puts their children down and hurts them. And yet what we have here is a different kind of picture in God's anger. It's compassionate. He looks at your flaws, your dustness. He doesn't say what's wrong with you. He says very deliberately and purposely in a controlled way, I want to bring discipline into your life in such a way that while you might lose a privilege or lose something, that on the back end of this is your goodness and your love and, and joy for you. Rebecca Manley Pippert has a book called Hope Has Its Reasons, and this is what she says about parents and their love for their kids. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in his son the drunk, the liar, and the traitor. If God weren't angry about how we're destroying ourselves, he wouldn't be good. He certainly wouldn't be loving, for anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the ultimate form of hate is indifference. So David says, I desperately need compassionate anger. Someone to get emotionally involved with me, but no selfishness, no pride, no ax to grind, no desire to pay back and save face. Someone radically for me. And we need that more than anything. We need somebody who can look into our lives with wisdom and guide us through the mess that we make of it and to say, look, this is what we need. I need you, Lord. And he says, I've got it. I've got, this better than, I've got this better than anywhere else that you can find it. And then the third idea, lastly, is this idea of ultimate home. So when we think about God's steadfast love, David tells us there's this idea of ultimate home. Now, what I mean by that is that within every single one of us, I think there's a desire for permanence to find your niche, Think about that. Don't we desire to find our niche? To find your place, the place that you belong, to settle in, and to find the people that you belong with. 
doing the things that you were designed to do. That's the desire for permanence, for home. You remember the old Cheers TV show and the theme song? How'd that song go? Sometimes we want to go where everybody knows your name. You want to go where everybody knows your name, where the troubles are all the same, right? You know, you know that when you're there, there's a place of familiarity and friendship. This is the desire for home. And yet, to lose that, to be continually on the outside looking in, looking in on friendships, to have no sense of home, to never find that niche, to never find familiarity, to lose your place of permanence, that's terrifying. The Bible calls that losing your place. And here's what David says in verse 15. As for, his, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. Makes me think of that movie, um, that great Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. And in that movie, the main character, George Bailey, uh, is ushered back into time into his hometown called Bedford Falls. But when he gets there in the movie, there's a section of it where his place remembers him no more. It's as if he's never been born. So he meets his mom, and she doesn't remember him. And she eventually calls the police on him. And, and he goes to his house, and his wife is there, but she's never even heard of him before. And his, his house is turned upside down. It's his dream house, but it's not the same. And for, for George Bailey, it's the nightmare of nightmares. No one remembers him. His place remembers him no more. Home is supposed to be that one place in the world perfectly fitted for you. That's your place. The familiarity and the comfort of being able to set things up just the way you like them. The couch goes here and the, the chair goes there and this is where things are supposed to be. We long for that. And yet in this transient world that we live in, Always on the move, it's, it's so easy to feel totally unanchored. And when David says that our days are like grass and the wind blows over it, he means that there's one certainty in life, it's this, that you remember, it, that your place will remember you no more because in this world, houses crumble and get old, people get divorced, your kids stop speaking to you, even your friendships that you had that felt so permanent when you were a kid, suddenly you lose touch and we drift apart and we lose relationships, ones that are supposed to be forever. And yet, even though all those things are like chasing after the wind and we spend all our money and our time and our effort trying to get those things, David finds security somewhere else. And so in verse 18 and 19, he says, I'm sorry, verse 17, he says, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. So I want you to think about that. David looks at the world. He looks at the lack of permanence. He looks at how transient and temporal all these things are and he recognizes within him a desire for home, for his ultimate place. And the one place that he knows he can find it is in the love of God. In the heart of God. That's what he's saying in verse 17. And in fact, it's this love that carries forward from children to children. He gets this picture of family and permanence from everlasting to everlasting. This is the place that we find our true selves, our true lives. And the love of the Lord is the only place 
that we can ever go where we're never forgotten, where the, the fire never goes out in the fireplace, so to speak, where the people who are inside the house always welcome us home. Is that good news? The love of God is our home. It's our place. Now listen to this. Who is it for? Verses 18 and 19. I want to close with this. Verses 18 and 19 says, With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Now, I would have to say that at first glance, remember, this is David saying, praise the Lord, O my soul. We, we've got to praise God about this. It should make my heart sing. And yet he points to all this good news being for people who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. And so at first glance, as a sinner and somebody who hasn't really faithfully kept the covenant or obeyed very well at all this week, I'm not inclined to sing with gusto the way that David is championing. So what's going on here? I think it's verse 19, because in verse 19, Jesus comes in. And what I mean by that is when we read, the Lord has established his throne in heaven, whose throne are we talking about? We're talking about the throne of the king, and who's the king, and whose kingdom rules over all? It's Jesus. And so this is that high point in our worship service where we say we need the good news of the kingdom of the gospel and to celebrate the love of Jesus Christ, who when he was on this earth, he said to his disciples that he had come to fulfill everything that was written about him in the law of Moses. Look at Luke 24. And Romans 5.19, he came to fulfill the covenant. And because he fulfilled all the covenant, Romans 5 says, that although through the disobedience of Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples, I go and prepare a place for you. I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. You get ultimate home. Well, what did Jesus say? Go to the next slide in, uh, in Luke 9, 58. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And so this is the work of Jesus. He's the one that keeps the covenant. And so the covenant keeper, the great king, he's the one that perfectly fulfills the covenant, obeys all the commandments. And he takes all the privileges and all the rights of keeping the covenant and he gives them to covenant breakers and the punishment that we deserve. No place to have no place, to have no steadfast love. He takes that upon himself and he becomes the one that has no place. You see, in Jesus, his entire earthly ministry, every time he prayed, he prayed, my father, my father, my father, except on the cross, on the cross, while he bore our sins upon his body, he was crowned with thorns. He prayed, Lord, Lord, not my father, but Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? It's so that you and I could be crowned with love and compassion, the steadfast love of the Father. And so here's what Jesus says. Yet to all who have received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. And the word believed there means to trust, to transfer trust 
to those who receive the gift of covenant faithfulness, to look at the covenant faithfulness and obedience that Jesus has purchased for his life and to say that the reason that I have the right now to be called the child of God, a child of God, is because he became the one that had no place. He became, he became the one that was forsaken by God of the steadfast love. He was the one. And so no longer do I trust in my ability to merit God's love. And I walk away from the instability and insecurity of trying to find life in this world. And instead, I believe and trust in the name of Christ and his steadfast love, his compassion, his anger, his, his wisdom and his will for my life and the place, the ultimate home that he has for me in his steadfast love. And as we meditate on that and allow that to come out into our soul, then we can find the stability and the security that we need in the world that we live in right now. It's good news. I need it this morning in big ways and in small ways. Even as you delete sermon slides and wonder, what in the world am I doing up here? It's the peace and the security of the love of God, which is unchanging. So let's ask God that wherever we're wrestling right now, that he might remind us of his compassion and his love and the place that he has for us inside of his heart. Father, we, uh, we are frail and weak and we are dust, and yet you know how we are formed and that our frailty and our weakness and our brokenness even compels you to love us more. This is the tender heart of God. This is the heart of God, our Father, whose love goes nowhere, even when we fall all over ourselves and make mistakes in our marriages, in our parenting, work, when we're insecure about the mission of God, when we stay on the sidelines, when we allow our thought life, our inner lives to dictate to us what it means uh, to move out into this world and to relate to other people. We're tempted to believe that our worth and our security is tied up in what other people think about us. And yet this morning you are merciful, you are gracious. And David reminds us that because of the gospel and because you are the covenant-keeping king, that we can find comfort and safety and stability in your arms. And so I pray that that would be ours again this week as the people of God, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, it was great to be with you this morning for worship. Next week, we have the awesome privilege uh, to hear from Avery Howell as he preaches through Psalm 139. So I hope you guys will come back and join us. But now, receive the benediction from Ephesians chapter 3. May, the, may God the Father strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that being rooted and grounded in love, that you would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.